Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Thursday, December 21st, 2023. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. It's entitled, Riverfront Plans Reach New Heights. It's written by Scott Stewart of the Nonpareil. Visitors to Council Bluffs Riverfront will soon be able to travel along treetops to gain new perspectives on the Missouri River and Omaha's skyline. A new riverfront walkway will connect the Bob Carey Pedestrian Bridge to a 138-foot-tall observation tower thanks to $5 million in private funding announced this week. The new addition to Tom Hannafin River's Edge Park is funded by local philanthropists and a lead gift made by Ty and Linda Borman, according to a news release. It aims to offer a unique and immersive experience, bringing nature enthusiasts, families, and adventure seekers together to enjoy the beauty of the great outdoors, the release states. We are thrilled to be part of the development of Rivers Edge Park, Ty Borman said in the release. The treetop walk not only provides a new and exciting recreational experience, but will also contribute to the overall well-being of our community by promoting outdoor activity and appreciation for nature. The gift was announced by Southwest Iowa Nonprofit for Collective Impact, which is conducting the fundraising and management for the fourth phase of Rivers Edge Park, which sits across the Missouri River and Bob Carey Pedestrian Bridge from Omaha's new Kewitt Luminarium. On the Omaha side, officials broke ground last month on the so-called Baby Bob Pedestrian Bridge to span Riverfront Drive and the nearby Union Pacific Railroad tracks. The bridge will connect to a new plaza at 10th and Mike Fahey Streets near Schwab Field and the CHI Health Center, Omaha area, and Conference Center. Council Bluffs Mayor Matt Walsh said during a groundbreaking ceremony for the Baby Bob that he never would have imagined the enduring impact that the Bob Carey Pedestrian Bridge would continue to have on both of our adjacent communities when development first started. A remarkable amount of imagination, revitalization, and growth have occurred on both sides of the bridge over the last 15 years, Walsh said. Walsh said this week that Rivers Edge Park continues to be a prime example of a successful public-slash-private partnership. Thanks to SINC, Rivers Edge Phase 4 is funded entirely by private donations. Tax increases are not part of the funding plan, Walsh said in the release. We thank SINC, the Borman family, MidAmerican Energy, and our other partners in the private sector for their commitment to Council Bluffs. The new treetop walk will connect the MidAmerican Adventure Tower a 138-foot observation tower that will feature an adventure course with a 50-foot climbing wall. Riverfront development plans also call for a pier, a dog walk, and playgrounds with an estimated budget of $50 million. The Iowa West Foundation has committed to a lead gift of $15 million toward the overall project. Pete Tulipana, president and CEO of SINC, said he expects the Riverfront project construction to be completed by the end of 2025, following the culmination of fundraising and planning efforts. We are grateful for the generosity of Ty and Linda Borman, whose lead contribution has set the stage for this extraordinary addition to River's Edge Park, Tulipana said in the release. The new treetop walk will start at the foot of the Bob Carey Pedestrian Bridge, with elevated pathways winding through the park's north side. 
Visitors will be treated to a bird's eye view of the river and Omaha skyline over a half mile loop. Educational components promoting environmental awareness and appreciation for the region's biodiversity will be installed along the walkway. The path will be built at levee height and all of the amenities planned for the north portion of the park will be built above the floodplain to allow for their use as the river levels rise. All structures will be supported by piles driven into bedrock and designed for flood conditions, including impacts from ice along the river. As we navigate the intricacies of the Iowa Riverfront development, there have been challenges to ensure that our ultimate design will withstand future flooding, Tulipana said in the release. We have submitted all essential materials to the Army Corps of Engineers, and we find ourselves on the brink of transformation. The other article from the front page of the Nonpareil is entitled La Ferla to Lead 712 Chamber. He's looking forward to diving in January 22nd. It's written by David Golbitz of the Nonpareil. Chris Laferla has been named Executive Director and CEO of the Council Bluffs Area Chamber of Commerce and 712 Initiative. Laferla has spent more than six years running the Council Bluffs Schools Foundation, and he told the Nonpareil on Wednesday that he's excited to promote the entire Council Bluffs community. We have a lot to offer in Council Bluffs, and I think promoting Council Bluffs is an important role, Laferla said. As a person who's proud to be from Council Bluffs, I want to be a part of telling that story about the incredible people and the diverse business landscape and amazing community that we're all building together. Laferla steps into the leadership of the Council Bluffs Area Chamber of Commerce following an announcement in October that the chamber was merging with the 712 initiative. The Economic Development and Community Development Organizations came together to allow for collaborative efforts between the staff members to offer additional resources and opportunities for businesses and families in our region. Laferla will be tasked with working with both organizations' board of directors to streamline operations, leverage resources, and determining how best the Chamber and 712 can impact the community, according to a news release. Our goal is to make Council Bluffs a better place to live, work, play, and retire, Chamber President David Zimmerman said in the release. Chris, as CEO of the newly merged Chamber of Commerce, will bring organizational leadership and will be an integral part of driving the change necessary to accomplish these goals. Amy Carlos, president of the 712 Initiative Board of Directors, praised Laferla as someone up for the challenge. Chris Laferla's proven leadership and dedication to community betterment make him an ideal choice for this role, Carolus said in the release. We believe that this experience will drive, that his expertise will drive positive change and elevate the impact of both organizations in the Council Bluffs community. Prior to his position with the Council Bluffs Schools Foundation, Laferla worked for more than 16 years at Iowa Western Community College first as Director of Admissions and then Dean of Admissions and Records. He has also served on the Council Bluffs School Board. Council Bluffs Community School District Superintendent Vicki Murillo recommended Laferla's leadership as head of the Council Bluffs Schools Foundation. He and his team have served as champions for our students, staff, and school community and have played a significant role in generating private donations for important school and community projects, including the Gale Wickersham Athletic Complex and the new Anne E. Nelson Early Learning Center, Murillo said in a statement to the nonpareil.
We will look forward to a continued partnership with him in his new role with the Chamber. Council Bluff Schools Foundation President Aaron Johnson appreciated the unique perspective and background that LaFerla brought to the foundation. As a district graduate, district parent, and a recently retired two-term school board member, he is connected and invested in our schools and community, Johnson said in an email. His contributions will have a lasting impact on our foundation and its mission. For his part, LaFerla admitted that he has a lot to learn about both the Chamber and the 712 initiative and how they are going to work together, but he said in an interview that he's looking forward to diving in. I'm excited about bringing value to the Chamber members and partnering with stakeholders to make Council Bluffs a more attractive community for businesses and to build stronger neighborhoods and enhance that overall sense of community, LaFerla told the non-Parel. For LaFerla, leaving the foundation wasn't an easy choice, but he is looking forward to being able to work with the Council Bluffs community as a whole. It was a very difficult decision for me to leave because I've been so passionate about the work that we do at the foundation, he said. I'm a passionate Council Bluffs resident, and I want to do things to help promote the community overall, and I feel like this is a good opportunity for me to do that on a broader scale. LaFerla is expecting to start his new role at the Chamber on Monday, January 22nd. Our next article is entitled, Police Arrest Man Suspected in Shooting Death in Council Bluffs. It's written by Scott Stewart of the Nonpareil. An Omaha man suspected in a fatal shooting in Council Bluffs on Sunday night was arrested Monday evening on unrelated charges. The Council Bluffs Police Department said that Mensa Oloway, age 29, was arrested and booked into the Pottawatomie County Jail on suspicion of serious assault, aggravated assault, and felon in possession of a firearm, according to a news release. The charges are unrelated to the homicide on Sunday, police said, and described that case as being actively investigated. Detectives are continuing to interview witnesses and gather evidence, police said in the news release. Further updates will be provided as they become available. Officers responded to a residence near Harrison Street and Canesville Boulevard at 6.38 p.m. Sunday for a report of a possible shooting. Police found Gary Frederick, age 62, laying on the floor with what appeared to be multiple gunshot wounds, according to an earlier news release. Frederick was transported to the Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, where he died a short time after his arrival. Witnesses reported seeing Frederick arrive at the Council Bluffs residence shortly before the disturbance broke out. Police say they were told witnesses saw Oloway produce a handgun and fire several rounds at Frederick before running from the scene. Anyone with information on the shooting should contact the police at 712-328-4765 or Crime Stoppers at 712-328-7867. Next, Mills County officials to name sheriff next week. This is written by Tim Rauer of the Nonpareil. The Mills County Board of Supervisors will appoint a new sheriff during a special meeting on Thursday, December the 28th. The board announced its plans to, as applications for the position were being accepted. They are due Friday. The county is seeking a replacement for Travis Otner, uh, Otter, excuse me, who resigned in late November. Chief Deputy Josh England has been serving as acting sheriff since then. Those interested in seeking that office can apply online on the county's website, the Mills County Auditor's Office said. 
Applications must be sent no later than 4 p.m. Friday. After accepting Otter's resignation letter, the board decided not to hold a special election for that position, but appoint someone instead. Glenwood is choosing the same path for selecting its next mayor following a similar resignation. We preferred that, said Richard Crouch, board vice chair, special elections get expensive. However, voters can still petition for a special election up to 14 days after the board makes its appointment, the auditor's office said. At least 827 signatures would be needed based on 10% of the turnout of the last election in which the sheriff's office was on the ballot, which was 2020, according to the auditor's office. Otter was elected to a four-year term in that election. Whoever is appointed will fill out the last year of Otter's term, the auditor's office said. As of Tuesday, three individuals, including England, have applied for that position, the board said. Our next article is entitled Vehicles Sought in Hit and Run Found in Council Bluffs. It's written by Kevin Cole of the Omaha World Herald. A vehicle suspected of leaving the scene of a collision with a pedestrian Tuesday night in Midtown Omaha has been located in Council Bluffs. Witnesses said a four-door sedan struck a pedestrian about 9 p.m. near 39th and Dodge Streets, an Omaha Police Department spokesman said Wednesday morning. The pedestrian was taken to the Nebraska Medical Center with injuries that were not thought to be life-threatening. Investigators developed information about the possible driver of the vehicle, the spokesman said. Police in Council Bluffs located the vehicle but did not immediately announce any arrests. Anyone with information about the incident is urged to contact the Omaha Police Department at 402-444-5656 or anonymously contact Omaha Crime Stoppers at 402-444-STOP or www.omahacrimestoppers.org or on the P3 Tips mobile app. And few Iowans have sufficient COVID vaccination. This is written by Jared Strong of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. The number of Iowans who have up-to-date COVID-19 vaccinations has plummeted in recent months after the threat of the disease reached a pandemic low and federal officials ended a public health emergency declaration. But now the spread of the disease in the state is very high, according to a recent report by the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. As of last week, about 10.4% of Iowans were considered immunized against COVID-19, according to HHS data. That is calculated using the state's database of immunization records. More than 60% of Iowans were vaccinated during the worst throes of the coronavirus pandemic, but those initial vaccinations have become less effective over time. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends updated vaccines that boost immunization and are meant to target currently circulating strains. The CDC issued an alert this week to healthcare providers that warned of low vaccination rates for COVID, influenza, and RSV, a leading cause of hospitalization among infants. Low vaccination rates, coupled with ongoing increases in national and international respiratory disease activity, could lead to more severe disease and increased healthcare capacity strain in the coming weeks, the CDC warned. There were 345 new hospital admissions of people with COVID-19 in Iowa last week, according to CDC data. 
That is higher than any weekly total in December last year and the highest since August of 2022. The largest number of new weekly admissions in Iowa happened in November 2020 when there were more than 1,500. That was before COVID vaccines were widely available. The CDC urged healthcare providers to vaccinate their patients and to recommend antiviral medications to those with flu or COVID. It provided a vaccination conversation guide to help allay patient concerns. And it's issuing that advice using vaccination estimates that paint a rosier picture in Iowa. The CDC estimates that about 28% of the state's adults are vaccinated for COVID. Taking into account the CDC's separate estimate for how many children are vaccinated, Iowa's overall vaccination rate is about 22%. The CDC figures are based on telephonic surveys that indicate about 17% of the country's adults have received an updated COVID vaccine since the middle of September. Its Iowa estimate is out of step with vaccination reports earlier in the pandemic, which the CDC based on data from those who administered the vaccines. That data indicated Iowa's vaccination rates were significantly behind other states, such as California, Oregon, and New York. The new estimate places Iowa ahead of those states. HHS said the CDC estimate is not comparable to the state data because their sampling methods differ and the state's figures is based on significantly more information. Albaum Talks Truth, Lies, and Forgiveness at Arts Center is the title of our next article. It's written by David Goldbitz of the Daily Nonvarel. In his new novel, The Little Liar, Mitch Albaum uses one of history's greatest evils, the Holocaust, to contemplate the nature of truth and how easily it can be twisted and distorted to fit an agenda that has no use for it. Albaum, the New York Times bestselling writer of Tuesdays with Maury and an award-winning columnist for the Detroit Free Press, read from the new book and signed copies at the Arts Center at Iowa Western on Thursday, December the 14th, as part of the Council Bluffs Public Library Speaker Series, sponsored by the Council Bluffs Library Foundation. I didn't really want to write about the Holocaust or World War II, nor do I really think of this book as a Holocaust or World War II book, Albaum told the nonpareil in an interview. I wanted to write about the truth, the idea of truth and the lies that we tell, and a book that kind of asked the question, what's the biggest lie you ever told, and what would you do to be forgiven for that lie? That was what I set out to do. Despite not setting out to write a book about the Holocaust, Albaum chose that time period because of how the Nazis wielded the truth like a weapon, contorting it until it was unrecognizable. It just happens that that setting and the sort of story that I use as a backdrop for this to tell a story about truth and forgiveness, I felt was most poignant set during that time because that was a time when the truth was in great danger, Albaum said. It was being perverted and destroyed, particularly by the Nazis and the lies that they were telling the world and the lies that they were telling their own people. Albaum, who is Jewish, set the book in Thessaloniki, Greece, which for a period of about 400 years was the only Jewish majority city in all of Europe until the Nazis came. The story begins almost like a fable with a young Greek Jew named Nico, who in all his 11 years on earth had never once told a lie. 
His grandfather had taught him at a young age that lying was a sin, and Nico vowed to always tell the truth. When the Nazis invade Greece, Nico catches the eye of a German officer who realized that he can use the boy's penchant for truth-telling to his advantage. Nico is separated from his family and has only the German officer for company. After all of the town's Jews had been forcibly removed from their homes and stuck in a ghetto near the town's train station to await deportation, the German official tells Nico he will see his family again if he tells the Jewish families, including his own, that there is no reason to worry and that the trains will take them to a new life in Poland with new jobs and new houses waiting for them. Desperate to be reunited with his family, Nico does this, unwittingly breaking his vow to always speak the truth. I had heard a story about ten years ago on a visit to a Holocaust museum where they had video testimonials of people who had survived the war, Albaum said, and one woman was talking about when they got on the railroad tracks and why they boarded the trains and how she was asked afterwards, why would you get on trains if you knew that they were taking you to your death in a concentration camp? And she said, we didn't know. We were fooled. The Germans would get Jewish people to stand on the tracks and tell us that everything was okay, that the trains were going to good places, and so we believed them because they were our people. And once we found out, once we got there, it was too late. The book follows Nico as he tries to come to terms with the lies he told, which in his mind is what led his family to their deaths, regardless of the fact that the Jews of Greece were going to be decimated with or without his participation. Of the about 71,000 Jews in Greece prior to World War II, nearly 59,000 died in the Holocaust. In choosing what to write about, Albaum said he tries to select themes that are contemporary in terms of the issues that are going on, even if the story itself isn't contemporary. In this case, I look around today, and it seems like truth is what you decide to make it, he said. You know, you pick your own cable news program, and that's what you're going to watch. You're not going to watch the other ones. That's the truth as far as you know it. Or you have social media followers, and that's your truth. It's so selective, and people believe that everybody else is just lying, and only they know what's what. Well, somebody has to be not telling the truth, because there's no such thing as 16 different truths. There's one truth, and we just have to work hard to find out what it is. In addition to truth, lies, and consequences, The Little Liar is also about forgiveness, whether of oneself or someone else. Would Nico ever forgive himself for the lie he told when he was a child? To what lengths would Nico go to receive absolution? And would someone else from Nico's community who also survived the war ever forgive him? I think many of us would like to go back and take back something that we said that we knew wasn't true at the time, or take back something that was told to us that turned out not to be true, that broke our hearts or led us astray or made us make a bad decision, Albaum said. There are so many consequences of a single lie. It can break apart a marriage. It can break apart a business relationship. It can strain a friendship. It can destroy years of trust. It can lead families to not talk to one another. We should never give lies that much power, but we do. The next event features journalist and author Will Haygood on February the 29th. Our next article is entitled, Iowa Bike Shop Tour Kicks Off Downtown at Extreme Wheels, written by Scott Stewart of the Nonpareil. 
The Iowa Bicycle Coalition visited local bicycle shops across the state to promote the small businesses and the role they play in the community. The tour began Tuesday, December the 12th at Extreme Wheels Bike and Sport in downtown Council Bluffs, which hosted a gathering following, followed by a bike ride along the new First Avenue murals. This is huge, store co-owner Tony Salvo told the nonpareil during the kickoff event. We don't pay for advertising, so we go by word of mouth, and this is going to be a huge word from a lot of mouths, so I'm really excited for what for everybody being here. In total, the coalition visited more than 80 bike shops from Council Bluffs to Davenport, according to a news release. We were genuinely excited to tour the state, hear from local bike shop owners, and meet with a number of highly engaged bike teams as well, Executive Director Luke Hoffman said in the release. Hoffman said the full Grassley tour aimed to show how bike shops build community, support the local economy, improve quality of life and mental health, and support the sport of biking. This visit is about talking about how that community gets built and how we can support it, and local bike shops are really the engine for that, Hoffman said. Hoffman told the nonpareil that some of the economic benefits of local bike shops include encouraging bicycles as a primary mode of transportation and use of trails. The Wabash Trace Nature Trail is Hoffman's favorite trail in the state, he said and he has gone on more than 100 rides, including recently biking the entire trail at once, spending money in Mineola, Silver City, Shenandoah, and other communities along the way. There's a huge benefit to being out in nature, and that's something that is really important, Hoffman said. The Support Your Local Bike Shop Week tour drew a strong reception from cyclists and community leaders. The coalition's signature annual events, the Iowa Bike Expo, and the Ragbri Route Announcement Party will be held January 27th in Des Moines. We were humbled by the level of engagement and excitement, Hoffman said. Salvo said his shop tries to meet customers wherever they are at, relying on repeat visitors instead of trying to capture as much money as they can during an initial visit. The main thing we try to do is figure out where you're going to ride and for how much And then your budget kind of comes into play after that, Salvo said. Really, we just try to find the right bike for the right person. We don't sell you anything you don't need because you're going to need it at some point and you'll come get it from me. In a somewhat related story, Scout installs bike repair station on Wabash Trace. This is written by Tim Rauer of the Nonpareil. There's a spot along the Wabash Trace called Margaritaville, where bicycle riders can rest, socialize, and even enjoy tacos each week. One thing, however, was always missing, a place where riders could make some needed repairs. That has now changed, thanks to an area Boy Scout. A bike repair station was recently installed there through the idea and efforts of Jackson Kruger, a member of Red Oaks Troop 86 of the Mid-America Council of Boy Scouts of America. It was my Eagle Scout idea, Jackson said. The station features different wrenches where riders can tighten or adjust bolts, as well as what Jackson described as wedges that help riders remove damaged or flat tires from the rim, as many riders always carry an extra tire. Jackson, who lives in Stanton, got the idea when he saw one hiking with his family this past summer in Arizona. This is a good idea, he recalled. Back home, Jackson began doing research on such a project. He also got approval from officials who oversee trail operations. They were all on board with it, he said. 
A tool kit was purchased. Then, with his father, he installed a wood frame along two 4x4 wood posts cemented into the ground. Altogether, it cost him around $500 for the tool kit and the wood, Jackson said. It was officially opened on Sunday, November the 5th. Riders have expressed their appreciation for the addition to the popular spot along the trail. They were all supportive of it, Jackson said. Let's jump to the opinion page. And the first opinion is another view from the Washington Post. It's entitled, Don't Let Trump Manipulate U.S. Justice System. High Court Should Speedily Review Former President's Claim He Can't Be Prosecuted. The essential moment in Jack Smith's 2020 election obstruction case against Donald Trump might have arrived, and, oddly, the substance of the charges has nothing to do with it. The special counsel recently filed a motion asking the Supreme Court to speedily review the former president's claims that he is immune from prosecution. The strategy is gutsy, but it might be necessary to get the case to trial before the general election, and that is a wholly legitimate goal for Trump's prosecutor. Smith has asked the justices to grant him what's known as certiorari, I don't know how to pronounce that for sure, before judgment. The Supreme Court has embraced the procedure in many cases involving national crises. That's because the public is as entitled to the fair administration of justice as anyone standing trial. Part of what makes this case extraordinary is Trump's unique potential to force a halt to the prosecution. Even when defendants use delay as a courtroom tactic, they typically still have to face prosecution at some point. By ignoring that timing in a case with the peaceful transition of power at its heart, the courts would allow themselves to be manipulated by a politician using his status as a candidate to avoid accountability. The former president's allies and his lawyers appear to believe his surest route to escaping accountability is to win re-election before a jury manages to convict him, then instructing the Justice Department to drop its case. The Supreme Court would show that the justice system won't be tricked if, instead, the justices ensured the case is tried on the merits. The Washington, D.C. Circuit panel has already decided that a president's civil immunity for actions taken while in office is limited when those actions are taken not in the president's role as president, but in his role as a re-election seeker, as when Trump gave his January 6, 2021 speech urging supporters to march on the U.S. Capitol. The argument that a president is free from criminal liability during his tenure, meanwhile, has next to nothing to support it in doctrine or in history. There's a reason, after all, that Nixon required a pardon from Gerald Ford and that Bill Clinton gave up his law license as part of a deal to avoid prosecution following his perjury scandal. This makes sense. A president's duties will never require him to break the law, much less to do so intentionally. What's more, much of the conduct described in the indictment, such as pressuring electors to defect or urging Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes, cannot be construed to be inside the scope of the executive's official duties. The Supreme Court should grant the special counsel the speedy hearing he has asked for. If it does not, the justices should at least instruct lower courts to move briskly, after which they should promptly choose once and for all whether to review the case. This procedural matter will swallow up the substance of the case unless the courts decide not to let it. 
You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Rating Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Our next opinion piece is written by Jonah Goldberg. Excuse me, Goldberg, who is editor-in-chief of The Dispatch at thedispatch.com. It's entitled, Anti-Semitism is a Problem for the Left, Not Just the Right. The good news is the bad news is wrong. The bad news? A Harvard-Harris poll found that 67% of 18- to 24-year-olds believe that Jews as a class are oppressors and should be treated as oppressors. One piece of good news The poll is pretty lousy, as Isla Solman, author of Democracy and Political Ignorance, explained for Reason magazine. The poll combines two questions in one, asking people to agree to both the description of the Jews as a class and how they should be treated, and uses terms such as oppressor, which are fairly unfamiliar to people not pledged into campus speak. Even better news, the poll is an outlier. Surveys from respected outfits, such as the Pew Research Center, find that American attitudes towards Jews are pretty favorable. But this is where the supply of good news runs dry, because even if Harvard's findings exaggerate the problem, the problem still exists. Actually, there are several problems. Rising anti-Semitism in the U.S., particularly among young people, and, not unrelated, a depressing amount of both general ignorance and highly cultivated ignorance. Given the horrific headlines since the Hamas attack on Israel, it's not worth rehashing the evidence of anti-Semitism's resurgence, both on college campuses and off. In October, FBI Director Christopher Wray testified that anti-Semitism was reaching historic levels, with fully 60% of religious hate crimes being committed against 2.4% of the population. As for general ignorance, an economist slash YouGov poll finds that one in five of 18 to 29-year-olds believes the Holocaust is a myth. An additional 30% said they don't know if it is. One way to look at this is to just throw this on the pile with the other depressing findings of widespread ignorance about things that have nothing to do with Jews. Half of Americans can't name the three branches of the U.S. government. Social media surely plays a big role. Digital digital iconoclasm, tearing down any established truths, and conspiratorialism are rampant on the internet. A quarter of Europeans and twice as many Russians think the moon landing was faked. Nearly a fifth of young Americans agree. Still, the economist found that most older Americans know the Holocaust happened. In other words, young people are a particular problem. This brings us to the cultivated ignorance, the deliberate encouragement of anti-Jewish bigotry by various institutions and influencers. The right has a well-publicized anti-Semitism problem. The GOP frontrunner famously dined with anti-Semites Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. Various new right and alt-right gargoyles indulge anti-Jewish rhetoric. That's all grotesque, but those gargoyles don't control the commanding heights of the culture the way the left does. The power of left-aligned academics and activists shouldn't be underestimated. 
while groups such as the Anti-Defamation League, Southern Poverty Law Center, and the various elite media outlets that rely on them as authoritative sources have covered right-wing anti-Semitism zealously. They have allowed the intellectual poison of anti-colonial and anti-oppressor ideology to go unchecked. This ideology holds that Jews, Zionists, Israelis, pick your label, are indeed oppressors. This framing is seductive to young people who want to belong to a righteous, rebellious cause more than master basic facts. For instance, University of California, Berkeley, political scientist Ron Hasner recently conducted a small survey of college students on issues related to Israel. Most students, 86%, supported the popular chant, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. But nearly half, 47%, couldn't name the river or the sea in the chant. Some guessed that the river was the Nile or Euphrates and that the sea was the Atlantic or Caribbean. It's fine to condemn both sides. I do. But the shock of decent liberals and progressives at the explosion of anti-Semitism in the wake of the Hamas attack is testament to the delinquency of the left-wing elites running academic and cultural institutions. When professors and students celebrate a pogrom and administrators find themselves tongue-tied about the condemning murder or the harassment of Jews on their own campuses, the complacency becomes obvious. One last piece of good news, when Hasner's researchers explained basic facts to the students who enthusiastically embraced from the river to the sea, many of them changed their views. Yes, this survey illustrates the failures of the center-left. It also shows they can remedy them if they want to. Our next news article is entitled, AIM, AIM Institute Introduces Students to Coding During Hour of Code Event. It's written by David Goldbitz of the Nonpareil. Nearly 900 students participated in an Hour of Code on Monday at Woodrow Wilson Middle School. Hosted by the AIM Institute, the program uses coding-related activities to introduce children to the career opportunities that are available in the technology sector. What we're trying to do is get kids more acclimated to STEM activities, said Tony Veland, AIM's Director of Member Development. If you look at the labor market, there's a lot of tech positions that are going unfilled because we just don't have the skill positions, and this is a way to kind of build that pipeline. Jobs in STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, are expected to increase by nearly 800,000 by the year 2031, according to a recent smart asset study. More than half of these are projected to be math and computer occupations. Hour of Code is a global educational program designed by Code.org, a nonprofit organization dedicated to ensuring every K-12 student has access to a computer science curriculum. So you get kids excited about the things that are going on in STEM and the things that are going on in tech, and hopefully as they go through school, they see themselves in that type of position when they get older, Vieland said. The Hour of Code website allows students to select from a wide variety of games and activities, including creating a Pong-like basketball game, building an escape room, or making a Super Super Mario Brothers-style platformer. This is just a precursor to allow them to experience tech in a fun way, Vieland said. It's learning. 
They use tech every day, whether that's video games, cell phones, social media, all those sorts of things. We kind of recreate the narrative to not just using it as a customer, but also creating a path they can actually be successful at long term. For more about AIM, visit aiminstitute.org. For more about Hour of Code, visit hourofcode.com slash US. Here's a few short articles about the uh, political candidates. First, Ramaswamy completes 99-county tour. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy visited the last of Iowa's 99 counties with a campaign stop in Franklin County, his campaign announced. Ramaswamy held the 99th county event at Seven Stars Family Restaurant in Hampton on Wednesday, finishing up his first 99-county tour. The Ohio biotech entrepreneur has said he will have completed the full Grassley 99-county tour twice over before the January 15th caucuses. The candidate has been on a fast-paced rural campaign tour over the last several weeks, often holding five or more events in a day at local restaurants and community centers. Some candidates boast about doing the full Grassley, visiting all 99 counties in Iowa, Ramaswamy said on social media this month. Proud to announce I'll be the first presidential candidate in history to do all 99 counties twice over in less than a year. We'll hit it by first week of January. As he has already visited many counties multiple times, by January 2nd, Ramaswamy's campaign said he will have visited each county twice after a Jackson County stop. The campaign said it will hold a rally to celebrate the feat on January 2nd in Scott County. Despite the aggressive campaign schedule, Ramaswamy has struggled to increase his support among likely Republican caucus goers, according to recent polling. Ramaswamy received 5% of support in the December Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll. Haley Super PAC swipes at DeSantis. A new ad from a group backing former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley for president calls Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign a dumpster fire. The 32nd spot from SFA Fund, Inc. consists of one continuous shot of a dumpster full of burning trash, accompanied by audio of TV news clips criticizing DeSantis' campaign efforts, including a headline categorizing his campaign as a dumpster fire. The ad, which will run in Iowa starting Tuesday, is the latest in a string of anti-DeSantis ads the Super PAC has released ahead of the January 15th caucuses. DeSantis has criticized Haley this week for spending money against him rather than Trump, suggesting she is angling to become Trump's vice presidential pick. Next, Biofuels Advocacy Group praises DeSantis. A prominent coalition pushing the advancement of Iowa biofuels says Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is the only 2024 presidential candidate to check all the boxes on vital agriculture biofuel issues. Of the presidential candidates currently campaigning in Iowa for the Republican nomination, Governor Ron DeSantis is the only candidate to date that has taken a positive position on all eight topics vital to the future of Iowa farmers and biofuels producers, according to Biofuels Vision 2024, a coalition of Iowa organizations that includes representatives from the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association and the Iowa Corn and Soybean Associations. 
the group tracks candidates' stances on eight issues vital to the future of biofuels and the Iowa economy, but does not endorse candidates. All Republican presidential candidates actively campaigning in Iowa support a growing role for biofuels and finalizing a rule that would allow the year-round sale of E15, gasoline blended with 15% ethanol, while opposing laws and regulations that directly or indirectly mandate electric vehicle purchases according to the coalition. However, DeSantis is the only candidate running who also supports adopting a methodology favored by the ethanol industry in guidance to companies looking to claim tax credits for sustainable aviation fuel. Former President Donald Trump, the GOP presidential frontrunner, has repeatedly taken swipes at DeSantis as a raging opponent of ethanol. And Binkley ad calls out fellow candidates. Texas pastor, CEO, and long-shot GOP presidential candidate Ryan Binkley released a new ad targeting what he calls the chaos of the Republican presidential field. The ad begins with clips of candidates arguing from previous GOP presidential debates. Is this chaos the best we can do, Binkley, Binkley says in the ad? If you want something different, you have to vote for someone different. The ad is running on TV in Iowa and on digital platforms nationally, the campaign said. Binkley, who is running on a platform of spiritual, economic, and cultural revival, has failed to receive major support in his largely self-funded campaign. Binkley failed to earn any support in the last two Des Moines Register, NBC News, Media.com, Iowa polls. There's one obituary in today's non-parel. And we remember Jeanette Jean Vulcans, age 87, of Council Bluffs, who died on December the 19th, 2023, at Jenny Edmondson Hospital. Visitation will be held on Friday, December the 22nd, from 5 to 7 p.m., with prayer service to begin at 7 p.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home at 1221 North 16th Street in Council Bluffs. The funeral will be on Saturday, December 23rd at 11 a.m. at St. Paul's Evangelical Lutheran Church at 239 Frank Street in Council Bluffs, followed by a luncheon. Interment will be in the Carson Cemetery. Memorials are suggested to St. Paul's Evangelical Lutheran Church or Camp Okaboji at www.campokaboji.org slash donations now we turn to sports, and the top story is entitled, Rutledge Makes It Official, Signs Letter of Intent with Iowa State. Thomas signs to Lindenwood, Getter to Southern Illinois, Elwood to UNI. This is written by Austin Heinen of the non Just two days after announcing his commitment to Iowa State University, Garrett Rutledge made it official by signing a letter of intent on Wednesday's early signing day. Rutledge, a three-star offensive line prospect according to 247 Sports and Rivals.com, officially signed to become a member of the Iowa State football team. Rutledge is excited to get his Cyclone campaign started next season as he liked the family-like atmosphere Ames had to offer. It's really exciting to make it official, Rutledge said. I'm very grateful for this opportunity and the future with this team. They're big on being good people first before great football players. My family and I really like that. Taking everything in, it felt like a great fit. This family-like atmosphere was a big selling point to the linemen. 
seeing the Cyclones rise from three wins a year ago to seven and an appearance in the Liberty Bowl has Rutledge believing this program is on the rise again to bigger things in the near future. I chose Iowa State because I believe in the coaches and where the program is headed, Rutledge said. The coaches are all great people and the team is very young and talented. I'm very excited for the future of the program. Rutledge, of course, isn't the only one excited for his future. Titans coach Justin Camrad is also eager to see his multi-year starting lineman excel as a player at the NCAA Division I level. Seeing his players on signing day and fulfilling their dream to play college football is something the five-year LC head coach loves seeing each year. Getting to see the kids' excitement and fulfilling their dream is the biggest thing, Camrad said. You see their years of how hard you see their years of hard work from when they were little to growing up and seeing them develop and get the opportunity to play at the next level, regardless of where it's at, it's always amazing. You have guys come sit down in your office and tell you their goals and wanting to achieve them. Helping them reach them is the most exciting thing for us as a program. Cam Red has no doubts that his first-team All-State offensive lineman has the tools to be successful in a Power 5 conference such as the Big 12. I think his passion and desire will also help lead him into great things, Cam Red said. He's a kid that suffered through some adversity and injuries last season and then came back this year with a point to prove that he's a really good football player and had a phenomenal football season and got better each and every week. He's only scratching the surface of what he can be and in terms of his development to get to Iowa State. Once he gets in their strength and conditioning program and their offensive program, he's going to really thrive there. Rutledge chose Iowa State over other offers such as, but not limited to, North Texas, Army, South Dakota State, North Dakota State, and Illinois State, among others. While playing football, Rutledge also plans to study general business at Iowa State as well. Iowa State finished the regular season with a record of seven wins and five losses and will play Memphis in the Liberty Bowl on December the 30th. Also for the Titans, Owen Thomas, who was not present at the signing day ceremony, signed a letter of intent to play football at Lindenwood in Missouri as a linebacker. Lindenwood finished with a record of three wins and seven losses in just the program's second season at the NCAA Division I AA level. Glenwood's Parker Getter also signed a letter of intent as he will continue his academic and football career at Southern Illinois University as an offensive lineman. The Salukis went eight wins, five losses overall this season before falling in the second round of the NCAA Division I AA playoffs. Trainers Carson Elwood signed his letter of intent to continue his academic and football career at the University of Northern Iowa as an athlete. The Panthers went 6-5 overall this season. Fellow Cardinal Caleb Cooper signed to continue his academic and athletic career at Northwestern College. The Red Raiders finished with a record of 14 wins and one loss and runner-up in NAIA, falling 31-21 to Kaiser of Florida in the national championship game. In high school boys basketball, Titans run away from Rams. This is also written by Austin Heinen. Lewis Central had pivotal runs in the first quarter and fourth quarter to pull away from Glenwood for a solid 75-57 win heading into the holiday break. 
Basketball is a game of runs, and the runs worked in our favor, Titans coach Ricky Torres said. We always want to get out to a good start, and to their credit, they hit some shots early, which got us digging deep on the defensive end, which made us clean up some things. Big credit goes to the guys for executing the game plan, lock down, and get some stops to make those runs happen. The Rams started strong, building an early 10-4 lead on the Titans to start the game. However, the Titans' defense turned into offense as four different players found the score sheet in the back half of the first quarter to spark a 14-2 run to close the first quarter. The Rams mostly kept the Titans from expanding their lead further until Jackson Larson hit a three in the final seconds of the first half to boost the Titan lead up by 10 points at the break. Our defense struggled a bit in the first part of the game, but Coach got into us and got us to step up, Larson said. Offensively, we just found a better flow. We were moving, cutting, driving, and just making more shots, and things kept rolling. The Titans scored the first four points of the third to expand their lead further to as big as 16 points, but the Rams trimmed it down to as little as nine early in the fourth quarter. The Titans wouldn't allow the Rams to get any closer thanks to a 9-0 run through the midpoint of the fourth quarter to build the lead up to as much as 18, which helped the Titans to end their 2023 portion of the schedule with a key Hawk 10 win. It's always a big game against Glenwood, Larson said, especially before break. It's nice to get this one for momentum as we continue to work through the break and get ready for what's left. Jackson Larson led Lewis Central with 15 points. Nash Paulson had 14 points, and Caleb Moore had 10 points. Glenwood was led by Aiden Gibson with 15 points. Caden Anderson added 12 points, and Drew Schroeder had 10 points. The Titans ride a three-game win streak into the break and won't return to the court until January the 2nd, when they travel to Harlan at 7.30 p.m. In the meantime, the Titans look forward to using part of the holiday break to better themselves for the second half of the season. I got to give a lot of credit to these guys. They've really brought bought into our plan, and they just keep competing, Torres said. We also just want to make sure we get everyone healthy. Some guys are still battling injuries from other sports, and we're starting to get some of those guys back. And with guys also like Paul, the Paulson brothers, White and Moore healing up, it's just a big slew of guys that can contribute. Now it's about fine-tuning some things and installing some new things and regroup to see what we can learn and improve on. Glenwood would also, will also return to the court on January 2nd when they travel to Atlantic for a 7.30 p.m. game. And in girls' high school basketball, Titans rebound from tough weekend to get past Rams. Again, written by Austin Heinen of the non Class 4A, number 10, Lewis Central, broke a two-game skid with a key Hawkeye 10 conference win over Glenwood, 54-42 in Council Bluffs on Tuesday night. Give Glenwood credit. They made some big shots early on and were hot from three, Titans coach Chris Hannafin said. It wasn't a great start for us, but they did everything they needed to do to get off to a good start against us. Anna Strohmeyer hit a couple of big shots for us and then found her penetration later in the game, and Brooke at the high post was really good for us. She was really hard to guard from there, and she made a big difference once she came into the game. The Titans started with an early 6-3 lead before a couple of first-quarter threes from Danica Arnold helped spark an 8-0 run to put the Rams in front. 
the defense made it hard for the Titans to get their transition game going early. Until the second quarter came around, the Titans found some mojo with a 12-1 run to go ahead 24-18 midway through the quarter. The Titans created some more distance from the Rams with a 7-0 run late in the third quarter as junior Brooke Larson began to find seams into the paint for 13 combined points after being held scoreless in the opening quarter. The Titans then fended off the Rams the rest of the way to a key win before heading into the holiday break. Lewis Central plays again on January the 2nd at Harlan for a 6 p.m. game. Glenwood will play again on January the 2nd as well, where they will play at Atlantic at 6 p.m. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Pareil. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.